0: Welcome to Herd at Heritage. Herd at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Hello, and welcome back to The Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind you about The Power Hour's email account. Well, I don't, but Travis, I know this is your favorite thing. Absolutely. Let us have
0: it. Hour at Heritage.org.org because we're an organization.
1: Very good. So reach out to us. Let's start a conversation. We did a recent podcast where we just addressed the some of the issues that were that came into us through the email account do that if you have a issue you want to discuss let us know if you have a person you want us to interview let us know so write it down it's the power hour at heritage.org now rachel how are you today
2: i'm doing great how are you
1: very good anything uh keeping you busy
2: uh, Yes, there's been some gas ban. Wait, wait!
1: Don't talk about that yet. Okay. Gas ban. Yeah. No, not yet.
2: Okay. <laughs> hold, your, you hold your
1: horses on that one. Got to save the best for last. All right. Well, save the best for somewhere in the middle. <laughs> Travis, now I can't forget about you. How are you? You're looking dapper today. I especially like your suit jacket and my lack of tie. Don't I, tell anybody. I am telling that.
0: everybody, but okay.
1: Yeah. No, I'm doing great. Full of energy. Full of energy. Well, this is the place for you. Um, As Rachel alluded to, I guess I did as well. There's so much going on with energy issues. Um, It's never ending, which I guess is good because we have a podcast to do here. Now, some issues that I'd like to put on folks' radar, and maybe we could weave it into our conversation, is the new EPA rule that's going to change how and what Americans drive. Now, Rachel... I know that there's been some movement on gas stoves. There has. I was hoping maybe this will come up in the discussion. I think it will. If it does, maybe you could give us an update on that.
2: I'll run point.
1: And while the rest of the world is rediscovering the value of nuclear energy, Germany this week just shut down its last reactor. These are all things that, when I look at the headlines, I think we should, that are, are worthy of this here podcast. Enough about that for now. We do have a guest. It's not just us. We do. And not just any guest, but a really, really good guest that knows more about how people get electricity to their homes than almost anybody. Um, now, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. I'm just spitting facts here. But if you want to be smarter, if you want to know why your electricity bill costs more or costs less, if you want to know how what happens in Washington or in your state capital affects your life or how a molecule of natural gas under the ground ends up powering your toaster, then today's your lucky day that's what you're about to learn and To help us through that we have Dan Dolan president of the New England Power Generators
3: Association welcome Dan it's great to be here and with that introduction I'm sure that we are going to uh, disappoint some people but no 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 I, no I look forward to helping in that cause well, yeah. I'm not done yet uh, I want to tell
1: people what makes Dan Dolan the right person for this conversation Uh, Well, New England is ground zero for many of the energy policies that some of us argue create serious problems for America's energy security. Now, are those concerns overstated or the product of some, some lack of knowledge? Well, Dan has seen it all, and he works daily to overcome them. So there's no better person to both set us straight, if that's what's necessary, or to just get us smarter on the issue. So... To do that, we'll ask Dan some tough questions, and I suspect you're going to give us some awesome answers. Or at least you're better. If you don't give us awesome answers, then there will come the disappointment. So with that, let's get to it. Um, now, Dan, you've been the president of NEPGA, is that what is that what I should call it? Yeah, it really
3: rolls off the tongue, but we call it NEPGA. NEPGA. I like that. And yeah. and to Travis's point on your email address, we're a .org, not a .com. The more fun organization is the New England Professional Golfers Association, but that's not us. I don't think they're more fun. I think electricity is far cooler than golf. I love it. I'm in the right crowd.
1: And you've been there for over 10 years, right? Yes, that's right. And before that, you were with the Electric Power Supply Association, which represents competitive power suppliers.
3: Yep, here in Washington, and uh, was there for almost 10 years as well. And um, I'm a trade association guy. I, I love representing power plants. So you know this stuff. A little bit. Allegedly. Allegedly. Some people say. <laughs> All right.
1: So, uh, so let's get to either the fulfillment of our listeners' expectations or not. Um, what does
3: NEPCA do? So we represent uh, the folks who own power plants in New England, and in New England – We are a almost entirely restructured electricity market, which means the power plants are no longer owned by the utilities, either municipal utilities or the the old school investor owned utilities. And so every power plant in New England must then live and die in the market. Whoever can provide the power at the lowest price With the the restrictions of the capital requirements of the New England wide electricity markets and certainly the environmental requirements at a state and federal level, they should all have an opportunity to compete. So within our group, we represent nearly 95% of the generating capacity in the six states of New England. And that means uh, the two remaining nuclear plants, the one remaining coal plant, the almost all of the natural gas fleet, and we also represent more renewable energy in New England than any other organization. Sounds like we're talking about Germany already. <laughs> no, maybe not that bad. Well, we we do shut down nuclear plants, uh, but we're we're trying to keep the the last two open. Uh, very good. So uh, we'll get more into policy for sure. But just so people can know you better, what's your role there? So I'm the president of the organization, which means that uh, I manage our our board, and we represent 18 companies that own different shares of all these different uh, power plants themselves. The vast majority of the work is inward, is trying to navigate and herd all those cats, given that the job of these companies every single day is to try and undercut each other, is to try and get market share to provide a better product. And our job is to try and find those issues in which the collective benefit outweighs the individual expectation and commercial activity that they're trying to to drive. So that means that we have to find those policy issues that can cut across these different fuels and technology. We're pro-energy infrastructure. We want to see uh, electricity used. As I like to say, I'm in the business of selling more megawatt hours, not less. And as part of that, we look at how do you set up the rules for how electricity is bought and sold coming out of the power plant to then serve a consumer? What are Uh, the different structures that have to be put in place, and particularly in a region like New England, it means navigating uh, a a pretty dramatic change in course that the states are driving in terms of how electricity is going to be consumed for what products and how electricity is generated and created. Our organization then externally has really two primary purposes. We operate uh, primarily in the regulatory structures, as uh, interstate commerce, and interstate market, we're primarily regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission here in Washington, and there is a, a New England-wide stakeholder process called NEPOOL that helps design all those market rules that then works with ISO New England, the market operator, and we come together through that process, then come down to Washington, see if those new rules uh, can get passed, and sometimes try and change the rules in place. And then we also work with the states, the governor's offices, the legislatures, the public utilities commissions, trying to set the top line policies and priorities, working with them, because while at a federal level, the sale of electricity is is wholesale, is interstate in nature, the siting is actually still wholly controlled by the states themselves. And so some of the environmental regulation, the siting of new facilities, and certainly some of the policies that states put in place in New England, let's say, uh, goes into the wholesale markets, affects the wholesale markets, we try and manage that process as well. And given that, frankly, we're not exactly the uh, uh, most outward-facing industry, we try and serve as the face, the voice for the industry overall with external stakeholders as well.
0: Well, I also just wanted to add a personal note. I've known Dan for a few years now, and he's always been incredibly helpful even when... uh... He had no reason to help me. I think our first conversation was when I was in the middle of the DOE report in 2017 and I was like, "Dan, what is going on in New England? Can you help me make sense of it?" And he's just always been incredibly helpful. I I, I appreciate that and he's a human being and speaks English and that is such a valuable thing, you know, in this acronym-laden world where Dan has survived in the trade association space in wholesale electricity for his whole career and that's that's something itself, you know. NEPCA, EPSA, FERC, ISO-RTO, all of this stuff is a lot of people glaze over. It's hugely important, and Dan's doing great work.
1: So one of our prior podcasts, we had Bernie McNamee on, and we got a great response. People really enjoyed it. But one of the pieces of feedback I got was that we didn't go into the very basics of electricity production. And I was wondering if we could do a little bit of that with you today. Sure. And Travis, I know you have a lot of knowledge on this. So um, – how does at in very the very simplest terms, um, how does electricity get to our house? like that that from a molecule or a whatever in the ground to my toaster?
0: Well, it starts as a freedom molecule. and in New England, sometimes they import the freedom molecules from Trinidad and Tobago. We'll get into that later, but and now I'll, I'll, now I'll let. <laughs> I
1: know
3: exactly what you're talking about. Thanks for that for that clarification. I love it. well. So at its most basic level, what power plants do is uh, try and create really fancy ways to boil water. And that's about it. So um, we use a fuel, and that fuel can be natural gas. It can be uranium. It can be coal or um, or, or just about anything else. And what um, most of those facilities do is then... Uh, burn, create a combustion of that product, obviously a a nuclear reaction is a little bit of a different thing, but if we're talking about fossil fuels, they they burn that product to then heat up water, create steam, which then goes through pipes to spin a really big turbine. And a hydro facility skips the creating steam and just uses a river flow or a pond to, to spin that same turbine. That spinning of the turbine then creates the actual energy the electricity which then gets distributed onto um, primarily bulk transmission lines and those are the big lines that you see on the highways overhead that is the bulk wholesale transmission system which is also at the, the federal level then that gets stepped down in voltage to a more manageable level that then is distributed in the individual communities and comes into the homes and businesses. So those bulk lines, are those the ones
1: that you see that are like huge and almost look like a giant stick man? That's exactly right.
3: Okay. So so that's the bulk. They go and then they go to some place? So then they get stepped down in in voltage. Uh, the To try and move as much electricity as possible, we have them at very high voltage rates. And then as they have to come into our toasters and all the other appliances in our home, those are regulated on on a much lower voltage basis. So you go into substations and transformers that bring that voltage level down that then gets distributed on what's called the distribution network. And those distinctions are important because those big transmission lines, the the stick figure uh, transmission lines, that's all regulated at the federal level. The power plant sales are all regulated at the federal level, except for most of Texas. That distribution network, that's regulated at the state level. And so how those transactions occur between that, that bulk wholesale level and that more localized state community level is where we see a lot of friction points on some of the policies that I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to dive into.
1: We are. But I have a, a couple of questions before we get to – I, as a consumer, I want to know a couple of things. Who am I paying and who do I get irritated with when the lights go out? Not me. Besides you. Who do you wh- – wh- whenever you do – whenever you point your fingers in opposite directions, who are you pointing
3: at? This is another one of these areas of complication. So it de- depends also why did the lights go out. Right. So I live in New England. We have bad weather. We get big storms. We get ice storms. Transmission lines go down. Get mad at God. At a certain point, there's almost nobody who who can uh, prevent some of these acts of God from happening and the impact that they have on, on the overall infrastructure. And particularly as we're looking at longer and longer distances, the vast majority of time. Trying to put all these transmission lines underground is just not feasible. There are instances, but let me, with a broad, let me ask brush. you: Who owns the transmission lines? Who's
1: responsible for them?
3: So the vast majority of transmission lines are owned by utility companies, and in the region of of New England, the transmission uh, the transmission and distribution are owned by the utilities, but the power plants are not, and so they operate that that system. Uh, they invest in putting up new lines, they reinvest in replacing some of the poles and wires and they earn a regulated rate of return based off of that set depending on whether it's that big wholesale transmission line or the distribution network at either the state or the federal level. However, also in New England, it's not the utilities that operate those lines who get to say, which power plant gets to flow electricity over that line. That is done by a separate entity called ISO New England. ISO New England has really two primary functions. The first is to serve as effectively an air traffic controller. They dispatch the network, making sure that uh, there are not voltage overloads, that the system is maintained at the 60 Hertz necessary to, to keep the flows going and make sure that everything operates reliably. Is that a public or a private entity? They are a private entity, but they are regulated as a public utility at the federal level. Under the Federal Power Act, they fall under the definition of any other public utility, and they're regulated that way. They also have a second critical function, which is almost like a NASDAQ. They are an electronic market that clears the or dispatches the lowest price electricity to meet whatever is that increment of electricity demand to keep the lights on in that moment. And they help set, what are the products? What are the rules for participating? What are the financial requirements to participate in these markets? That is all done through this regional transmission organization, this independent system operator. And in New England, it's ISO New England. Okay. Who do I, who am I paying? When I pay my electric bill, who am I paying? So the customer relationship primarily happens with the utility. So in New England, the two biggest utilities are Eversource and National Grid. And uh, it's going to be their logo on your bill that you get every month.
1: So they own the transmission lines. And the distribution lines, correct. And so who, who are they paying to
3: get electricity onto their line to sell to me? So that can happen in one of two ways. Either you are just a utility customer, which the vast majority of households are, and the utilities incrementally, so every six months or so traditionally, they go out into the market and they say, we need bids back to us on who can provide electricity to all our electricity demand over these next six months and these wholesale suppliers. Sometimes they're generators, sometimes they're other entities that put together different electricity portfolios to then meet that that utility demand and the utility pays that supplier. There, however, is another market which is a competitive retail electricity market which means there's some other entity who says, I think I can provide a better product, either a lower price or uh, a different makeup of that power generation source, for example, if folks want to have a higher percentage of renewables in their portfolio, or they want to be able to lock in a price for more than just those six months, they can create different structured products, and the utility then simply acts as a pass-through for that retail supplier, and the customer would flow the money through them.
1: Okay. Seems... uh... Complicated. I was going to say simple enough. No, mm. <laughs> it's 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 extraordinarily complicated, and it seems because it's not straightforward. Um, very easy. It's not straightforward. There is layering of public and private authorities. There uh, that gives space for, and I'm not. I'm, this is not an accusation of anyone. It gives space for corruption. It gives space to. Um, to extract bits of money here and place it there, to build business models around agendas because it's not so straightforward.
2: And kind of just generally speaking, is this how these markets operate across the country? Is this just your region? Uh, Okay, so this is...
3: So there's actually essentially two different structures that happen across the country. There's the, the model I just described, which is primarily the mid-Atlantic, up through New York, into New England, out to about Chicago, and then most of California and most of Texas. The rest of the country, painting with a very broad brush, is in what we would consider the more traditional model of a vertically integrated utility structure in which a single company owns the poles and wires as well as the electric power plant itself, the the generating source. Now, even in those utility service territories, there are still what we call competitive generators or merchant power plants that do offer supplies to the utility. But by and large, they do have that more old school, vertically integrated structure.
1: Okay. I have one more basic question, then we'll get into the the good stuff, the, the policy stuff. We often hear you just mentioned about competition in electricity markets. Some there's more, there's less. You just mentioned in describing the way New England and the competitive markets are set up a number of different layers of, of of business. Could you describe? Could you help me understand where there are opportunities for competition, where competition exists, where it could exist, but doesn't? Sort of walk me through the the the, the landscape of competition.
3: Yeah. So the The biggest area of competition is in that electricity supply and that comes in two steps as well. First is just the production, the creation of of electricity and that's at the power plant level. That is a highly competitive market that has been a highly competitive market for now uh, about three decades across the country. There is a second layer which is then in the packaging of, of that electricity. There are what are called power marketers or power traders who then take that, that electron and say, I can figure out a, a better way to package that for a consumer. Again, take the risk of, of cost over a longer period of time. I can put together a different portfolio of resources that, that create that electricity. I will then resell that. That's why it's a wholesale market. There is a, a sale to a resale. I will resale that that, that product to an individual consumer. The utilities for the most part are the face of that market for the consumer. They purchase on behalf of the consumer and then flow those costs through. That right now is the biggest area of competition. What has traditionally been the part that has been most insulated from any competitive market is that transmission and distribution function. However, we are starting to see little glimmers of opportunity for competition on the big, bulk transmission projects. Those are the ones that have to be planned many years in advance. They are usually discrete in terms of we need to get from point A to point B and we've got a gap here in the transmission network. There have been several policies over the years, including Acts of Congress going all the way back to 2005. Looking at trying to increase competition there, can we explore putting up some of those same competitive pressures on the transmission system? And there are some of those competitive transmission lines, but it really hasn't been a robust move. Uh, And in fact, what we're now seeing is a move in the other direction where there has been legislation in several states to actually block that type of a competition on the transmission network. What is still the part where I don't see any competitive movement in the United States is on that distribution network. That the wires you see on your your leafy street uh, into your home, that is purely just whatever utility service territory you're in, That uh, it is just given to them.
1: And while maybe it has nothing to do with it, there's also, just from my years of experience as a consumer, seem to be the thing that breaks down and prevents me from getting electricity the most. So maybe there's not a causation there, maybe it's just correlation, but being the free market guy that I am, I am I always err on the side of competition giving me a better product at a better price, and uh, maybe it's just l- luck, but it seems to me that the place where there is the least amount of competition is the place where there's the most amount of issue.
3: Well, and I would also argue that the parts of the electricity bill that, that you and I and everybody else pays every month where we have seen the biggest increases over the last 20 years have been those most highly regulated, inured to competition segments, particularly in New England on the transmission side. In other words, when your bill goes up, it's not Dan's fault. Not every time. It's not the
0: generator's fault in general. There is a massive amount of new spending on transmission. Some of it is things that end up in rates that have nothing to do with even generation or transmission per se, we're seeing a lot of things like, oh, utility wants to build the EV charging station and want to put that in the rate base. So there's a lot of stuff that ends up in your bill that may not be directly related to the things that Dan is talking about. So that's another layer to add on top and of it. And we're
1: that. seeing that now with the, the, wind, um,
3: the wind lines out west where they're trying to socialize the cost of that stuff. If you want to think about it, there's three buckets of costs in in your electricity bill. And every state does it a little bit differently. But generally, there's the supply portion, which is the cost to generate the electricity itself and and sell it to the utility. There's the transmission and distribution, those poles and wires to to bring that uh, product to market. And then there's public policy. It's all that other stuff, whether that's carve outs for uh, individual resource types, whether it's spending on things like energy efficiency. A lot of these things have have genuine public policy reasons behind them, but they are a little separate from that traditional creation, transportation, and consumption of the product itself.
1: Uh, Just to clarify, when Dan said energy efficiency, um, I'm now putting, not for Dan, but for myself, air quotes around that term. (laughs) <laughs> because if government is forcing people to pay for so-called energy efficiency through public policy, there's something going on. But we're going to get to that. But first, Travis.
0: Well, so on the energy efficiency point, there is actually a way to sort of shoehorn that into the market. You can you can do energy efficiency in sort of this – they call them aggregators. You can do like a demand response aggregation and sell that into the market. So there mm-hmm. is – it's not entirely government bad energy efficiency, but there, there is certainly an element of that. One thing I wanted to raise though, we, we talked about the prevalence of offshore wind, especially in New England. It seems like a New England phenomenon. You can tack Jersey onto that in the next few years. One thing that's interesting to me is like, well, is it, is it that it's a really good wind resource? Is it that New England has relatively higher prices and it's close enough to the wind resource that that's the reason what do you see as the main driver for why is New England obsessed with offshore
3: wind? Obsessed is my word, but, so I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what's the deal? No, I agree with obsessed, uh, and it's really all of the above at this point. So on the one hand, there is a really strong wind resource off the coast of, of New England. It's one of the reasons that Newport, Rhode Island, is one of the sailing capitals of the United States. So that, that doesn't come from nowhere. There's also the fact That for the same reasons we have had historically a really strong fishing industry, that offshore wind could actually be constructed more easily, I'll say, than in most other parts of the country. We have the continental shelf that goes out quite a ways. And so the depths are not nearly as much as, say, on the West Coast Right. in in terms of if we're going to drive steel into the ground, how far you got to go through the water. Because you'd
0: think if anybody's going to do
3: this, it's going to be California. But they just don't have the shelf out there. That's right. Okay. That's right. Uh, and so that's, that's one aspect of it. Another part of it is because of a accident of geology, we don't have natural gas underground. We don't have coal underground. We certainly don't have uranium underground in, in New England. So going back to the 1900s, we have been reliant on imported fuel sources to then create the electricity more locally. And so what many policymakers see is offshore wind is an opportunity to localize it, control that, get more of the economic supply chain, the factories for the cables and the wind turbines and all the rest of it, try and bring that in to a region that has frankly lost most of its industrial and manufacturing base. Then there's uh, the fact that New England it has Uh, an explicit policy across the vast majority of its states to have uh, decarbonization mandates. I am consistently uh, reminded these are not goals. These are legal mandates that uh, the states have have seen fit to put into place, and with those combination of other factors, offshore wind has been seen as a bit of the golden ticket to get there. It's not going to be the panacea. It can't be the silver bullet answer to every question. But it's hard to see how the states are going to meet these these different metrics without a resource like offshore wind.
1: It's unclear to me how offshore wind helps them meet those metrics. And the frustrating thing I think for me as an analyst of energy policy is you just ticked off a list of things there that are trying to be met, most of which I would argue are artificial and present more of a special interest than the uh, – than a public interest to make sure people have access to energy. The, the one that that um, I thought was uh, particularly interesting was this notion of wanting to localize energy. Um, maybe these folks need to read Adam Smith, um, but that, 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 that in, instead of taking advantage of all that this nation has to offer, if not the world has to offer, to foist upon a local population this notion that they need to get wind energy, which costs more. It, we we well, we can talk about the problems with it. We've talked about it before, but it costs more. It's um, it doesn't provide baseload power. All of there are tons of issues with it, which is why it needs to be subsidized and not just being built. Um, seems almost, and I'm not putting words in your mouth. I'm not. You know, we're just having a conversation. Feels immoral to me. It feels immoral to me. And then you combine that with policies that specifically, I would argue, are put in place in order to justify the larger agenda, which things like making pipelines more difficult. Like, we don't have natural gas here, and we can't get it. Oh, and by the way, we're not going to be able to get it because we're not going to allow new pipelines. So the only thing we can do is build these windmills, and I don't know, it just seems odd
3: to me. The whole thing feels odd. We're trying to do a lot of economic development through the electricity bill. That is clearly not the most efficient way to do that. And yet that is what we're trying to do in in the region overall. And part of that is because there have been constraints put on. And this does get into the philosophical role of government that I think the the Heritage uh, Institution is squarely created to, to try and address and wrestle with. And yet New England, for the most part, and I'm painting with a broad brush, there are certainly exceptions, but for the most part has a very different philosophical view on that role of government and in their view, the responsibility they believe they have to try and inject these other public policies into places that from a markets perspective and I'm a markets guy, they don't really fit neatly.
0: Well, Mm -hmm. far be it for me to accuse anyone of being inconsistent, but- I will note the ISO New England, it's supposed to be an organized wholesale market. So they, they, whoever the we is that's now trying to decarbonize and all of that stuff, policymakers have already decided to set up a wholesale electricity market. And as far as I know, we're sticking to it. But then the question is, why not just jump with both feet into that paradigm, but instead... It seems like it's a one foot in, one foot out because there's always, well, we want to do this out-of-market stuff, whether that's to keep an existing plant running because we think we need it for reliability reasons, to do the things that we want to do for environmental outcomes. The offshore wind stuff is decidedly an out-of-market play. It's not the kind of thing that would clear on its own in a capacity market. So the question is, why, why did New England in the first place embrace markets and then follow up? what's happening now in terms of are they are they still embracing markets or is this, am I correct in the one foot in, one foot out thing? Because that seems like sort of the worst case for consumers because you're getting the market outcome, which of course I would prefer that as a consumer, but you're also either as a taxpayer or as a consumer, you're paying for the out of market stuff too.
1: Yeah, just real quick, just to add on to Travis's question, that's a great way to put it. it it's like they are creating the situation that that creates the dynamic that people who oppose markets use to justify market interventions they're saying let's do free markets for energy let's introduce markets and then let's put all these constrictions on them to virtually ensure that the result of that so-called market res- results in a far suboptimal product and then the politicians come and say see told you markets don't work yeah, so so, so we're going to do these things
0: let's put Dan in the hot seat is, is it a market or not go Yes. Is it a free market? No. <laughs> Why have states decided to only half-heartedly embrace the market and then also do all this
3: side stuff that they want to do? Because it's more fun. So look, on the one hand, the reason we started these markets in the first place, so to Travis, to go to your original question, what the history of this is, you thought this was bad. Oh, man. Let, let's go back. 30, 40, 50 years, and the amount of corruption that was seen and inefficiency that was occurring with the regulatory capture that existed when you had entire corporations that lived and died on only what a regulator or a legislature was willing to approve and pass. That drove massive inefficiencies into the system. New England, under that system, was one of the most expensive regions in the country for electricity. We had nuclear plants that were operating at dramatically lower efficiency levels. Nuclear plants today across the country operate at roughly 95, 98% what are called capacity factors, the efficiency of of those units. Going back to the 70s and the 80s in in New England, we had nuclear plants that were running in the 70% capacity factor range. So massive inefficiencies, we saw massive cost overruns, gold plating of the system. When you earn more money for every dollar you spend, because it's a rate of return, it's a percentage, the incentive is to spend more. And so we saw that perpetuating itself and and rolling it out. And there was then this wave that that started happening across the country of saying, there's got to be a better way. This broader deregulation push that we saw across the economy coming out of the 80s into the 90s really took hold in New England in a big way. New Hampshire was actually the first state in the country that introduced some form of restructuring of the electricity market, and off we went. New England as a whole uh, decided to, to pursue it. That did drive efficiencies, it did drive massive amounts of new investments. Tens of billions of dollars were poured into new facilities and repurposing of existing facilities to make them more efficient and operate better. Now, we're in a system where the pendulum is, is swinging back. And, and you're right, to a certain degree, the states are trying to have it both ways. On the one hand, say, I wanna go to that ribbon cutting I want to be able to justify creating a new economy, a new industry within a, a region whether that's offshore wind or solar or or large battery storage things like that. And so I'm going to I'm going to create a slice in the market for that. I'm going to give it a carve out. I'm going to guarantee that that they can move forward. But I also kind of sort of recognize that for reliability purposes, for some semblance of competitive pricing, I'm gonna need this other stuff, but I don't wanna to have to pay it directly. And so for that, we're gonna use this wholesale electricity market that's regulated in Washington, that's operated by an institution that nobody's ever heard of called ISO New England. And so we're we're gonna create this bifurcated market. We have not seen this type of structure really work in any market in the world on a long-term basis, but we're trying, and this is what we're we're getting into, is this half-pregnant state, Uh, and the fundamental question is, is this sustainable or not? And it is an open question.
1: Within that, so that's one side of the equation, the electricity supply side. There's this whole demand question. And Rachel, I know you've done some work on natural gas stoves and what they're trying to do there. What's what's going on with that and sort of with, uh, with yeah, what's going on with gas stoves?
2: So um, obviously just recently the comment deadline closed because uh, the DOE was introducing these stringent energy efficiency standards on gas stoves, um, well, on all conventional cooktops, but specifically gas stoves. Um, and it would effectively ban them, right? These, these standards are so stringent. It requires 90% of models to, to reconfigure and redesign. Uh, we did see that in California just earlier this week, Berkeley was actually, the city of Berkeley, was the first city in the U.S. to introduce a ban on, on gas hookups. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, just came in and basically reversed that that ruling, based on EPCA, which I think is an interesting. Um, not in Uh No, not <laughs> EPCA. Yes. um Yes. EPCA, um, which is the exact same uh, statute that the DOE is using to to ban stoves. So, I mean, it's a whole consumer choice argument where. Where the government is basically prescribing these standards and kind of ignoring consumer preference. Um, and we we know that nearly forty million American households use natural gas, so it's a huge and sweeping issue. But yeah, I
1: suspect so... in New England natural gas so natural gas appliances are so if 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 Washington's successful in pushing this electrification Mm-hmm. That's going to totally change the the demand uh, the, the, that's put on the system, and and even worse. Well, it, it adds to the open question. So if you
0: if you believe in electrifying everything, then the question is, can we even satisfy the demand that you would expect from not just the home cooking appliances and things like that? If you try to electrify transportation all of it. So if you want to sort of cram the EV narrative, if you want electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engines, all of that falls on the grid too. And then that's question of at the same time. And again, it's like the same, the same... But government a- would the, never push that, <laughs> Travis. The, the same agency is on both sides of this coin where like EPA right. regs are the the things in part shutting down coal plants. Um, and I, I'm I'm curious also to see, I, I don't know the answer to this, but there's a lot of oil fire generation in New England. I'm curious if, you know, the EPA's new mercury and air toxic standard rule, if that's going to have an impact where you can't even operate oil fired power plants anymore. Then it's a question of, so it's the same agency saying, well, now everybody has to be on EVs. It's the, I would call it like the California paradigm where you go, everything has to be electric but there's not enough electricity for everything already, so uh, sorry, sort it out, you know? It's one of those, yeah, we want you to have an EV, but you can only charge it when we tell you there's enough power because there's not enough for everybody, we're gonna have to ration it. It's sort of walking into that, that, is that the future that we're seeing? Is that gonna be, how big of a pinch would that be for New England specifically if you went, well, let's just go all EV, you know, home heating, all of that stuff. We have to electrify
3: everything. What's the impact? I'm going to go back to something I said at the outset, which is I'm in the business of selling more megawatt hours, not less. So we strongly support moves on, on electrification. I do have an EV. I've got a heat pump at home now. I have a, a backup system to that as well. And I have an induction stove, which I love to cook on. I don't believe that we should require mandate – again, I'm a markets guy. I think consumers should be able to make these decisions in the same way I made that decision. Overall, again, based on the, the state policies that we have in in New England, it is impossible to meet the, the mandates and requirements without dramatically electrifying places like transportation, like home heating. The question, I think, Travis, you're trying to get at is, can the grid sustain that? Or are we walking into a trap? Or I'll put a finer point on it. We need the resource, the
0: fuel, the, let's call it, either you're using natural gas or oil, or I'm not sure there's any new nuke plants being built in New England. Where's the energy gonna come from is my question. So yeah, of course you wanna supply it. I'm, I'm all for that,
3: but where's it gonna come from? So right now, What we're projecting is the need for a massive growth in investment in some of these new sources. There are thousands of megawatts of offshore wind that are mandated under some contracts by the states. Now, it is a question of execution on some of those contracts, when and if we see some of those developments happen. Uh, I do expect to see the first of the major offshore wind farms come to market by the end of this year, early next year. After that, there is a real question on the financing and siting and development of those facilities but that's a big bet that the states are making. To then balance that out, sustain the operations of the system, make sure that the lights do stay on because as we electrify broader swaths of the economy, the value of reliability, that that loss of load number that, that us wonks like to think about, that's going to go up. It becomes a more important fundamental resource for us as a society and an economy. And today, the markets are not appropriately designed to sustain that level of reliability. We're working on it. We're, we're pushing hard to try and get there, create the structures, create more products for keeping more uh, generation in reserve for those times when the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine and you've discharged the battery where fundamentally a lot of this other incremental generation is going to come from? I don't know. Uh, and and I do think we have to have a certain amount of humility around that. And this, again, goes to me being a markets guy. I think we have to be more comfortable with not knowing exactly what is that resource that's gonna come out. Let's set out that policy priority. Let's set the structures that are necessary around reliability criteria and delivery, and hopefully then drive a competitive structure To create that innovation, the new investment that is going to be necessary. So that's my optimism uh, for New England. I I do think we can do this, but right now it is really uncomfortable and really hard. Well, so so from an outsider point of view,
0: and I, I should note that FERC is pretty actively engaged in these issues. So there was, I believe, September of last year, there was a forum in New England on- FERC came to us. Right. So it was a What are we going to do about New England? And in the short term, I think the only answer, and thank God we did have a mild winter. I think in the short term, the answer was, let's cross our fingers and hope for a mild winter. And that's exactly what happened. And thank God. But moving forward, and FERC does have another one of these forums in, I believe, June. And, you know, (laughs) encourage folks to follow along on all this stuff. But it is a tough nut to crack. It is one of those things where, yeah, even if you are able to reduce the amount of gas burned in the region, for example, so, you know, your fuel use in aggregate is down. The moments when you need it, you really need it and you need high flows. So it's more of a question of timing and sort of the the amount that, that you can get, especially on short notice. You don't know exactly when the bad weather is going to hit, if it's going to hit this winter at all. Uh, I'm just curious how how you're approaching these forums and sort of what, what you're view towards the the FERC and I guess we could even bring in the NERC end of that the North American Electric Reliability Corporation which is the um, FERC designated ERO, the Electric Reliability Organization which is all... You told me no acronyms. This is all, I'm trying to spell them all out but this is all sort of in the post you know the August 2003 blackout where everybody was like this system is more fragile than we realized we need a better handle on it and even in that context even with the new sections of the Federal Power Act and all of that, we're still, it seems like we get stuck in these, you know, it's, sometimes it's only regional, but we're, we're sort of stuck in this paradigm of how do we ensure reliability? And again, it's just a really tough nut to crack. I'm curious how you're approaching it.
3: So look, we've been dealing with this, this winter issue in New England, uh, energy security, fuel security. How do we ensure a, a reliable supply for almost 20 years? It, for for us FERC groupies, uh, you go back to the winter of 2003, 2004, there were a couple nasty cold snaps in, in New England that then led to a call of, hey, the system is getting too tight. This is uncomfortable. And so FERC actually did a big report on the... The, the winter cold snaps and talked about the need for firming up fuel supplies, making sure these just in time deliveries actually get to the power plants and that they can. And the the operate. shot across the
0: bow was the 2014 polar vortex or PJM, different region. Everybody says it's sort of overbuilt, has overcapacity. Uh, depends. It depends
3: on how the weather's doing. Um, so th- these are these are scary times. Then of course Texas add just the... a couple years ago. Yep. And and so look. Um, The consequences are real. Let's look at Texas. Um, Huge loss of life and uh, almost incalculable economic impact. So this stuff matters. We can't wish it away. We can't hope it away. Uh, And yet I also think that some of these winter fuel energy security issues in New England, because we have been wrestling with them for now decades, they're almost too big to wrap your hands around. The dumb analogy I use, this is almost like trying to solve peace in the Middle East. It's too big. So we need to try and get individual slices of it. When FERC came to New England, they came up to, to Burlington, Vermont in the first week of September, which was a beautiful time to be there. They're now coming to Portland, Maine in the middle of June, also a beautiful time to be there. So I, I give mm, them I credit. I hadn't thought of that. That's yes. very smart on their part to only go to New England in the summertime, basically. And, and great breweries. So everybody come on up to Portland, we'll have some fun. We just saw some of the the individual, more specific topic areas that they want to talk about in in June in this forum. And and I actually give FERC a, a, a lot of credit for how they're trying to structure this because they are now looking at some of these discrete issues. New England has what I believe is the last liquefied natural gas import facility in the United States. It's called the Everett Marine Terminal in Everett, Massachusetts. You could throw a baseball and hit the Boston City line. That facility uh, has provided historically a a lot of uh, important natural gas supplies, both for power generation. There's a co-located power plant there called the Mystic Generating Station, as well as for uh, gas heating in the homes uh, to the the gas utility network in the greater Boston area, and even some interconnections into the interstate pipeline system uh, right there outside of Boston. What happens with that facility, the future of that facility, right now is the hottest discussion in wonky energy discussions in in the region. And FERC, to their credit, is pinpointing on that and saying, we need to address that. Is it necessary for reliability? If so, how do we keep it around, particularly if if the power plant that's co-located for it does retire, which it is supposed to retire uh, in the middle of 2024? And what does it mean for this region over a long term as we try and think about how do we bring in the natural gas supplies that are going to be necessary for decades? Well, and
0: we've talked about this. You're very pessimistic on the idea of a new natural gas pipeline going into New England, even with something like, you know, the pieces of HR1 that that we think are helpful and at least directionally helpful. You know, the Section 401 of the Clean Water Act, that's basically what the state of New York has been using to say – we don't want to approve any new gas pipelines. I don't You're believe, saying even, even with that, you yeah. think it's it's impossible.
3: I I don't believe there will ever be a new natural gas pipeline built into New England. Let's let us let us back up. You know, the last compressor station, and a compressor station is is really just a a giant engine that you attach to a pipeline to try and literally compress down the molecules so you can flow more molecules over over a natural gas pipeline. There was a – the last compressor station built in New England was in in Weymouth, Massachusetts, actually across the street from from a power plant that's been there a long, long time. That led to hunger strikes in the governor's office in Massachusetts. So building any fossil fuel infrastructure – forget that. Building any infrastructure in New England is really freaking hard, right? It can be done but it's really, really hard. And so we're now in the business of how do we maximize the infrastructure we do have? Which is why this question around the Everett Marine Terminal is such a hot button one. How do we sustain the operation of a lot of these facilities that based on the environmental uh, regulations and mandates that exist in New England are going to have to operate less but to the earlier conversation around electrification and that value of reliability are gonna actually be more important. So you run less, become more important, and we have to pay you. We have to sustain uh, uh, the investment there. How do we create revenue adequacy that sustains the electric resource adequacy to maintain a reliable system? Again, we're, we're breaking new ground globally. Uh, in trying to structure these markets to do that, I remain optimistic that we are going to get it done. But yeah, this this muddled middle period, this transition period to whatever is the nirvana in the future is really uncomfortable. And it, there are going to be uh, losers through that process. My job is trying to represent the the industry as a whole, of making sure that there are enough winners through that process as well to get us through and and ensure that we maintain economic viability and prosperity for the region.
1: Dan, I'm glad you're optimistic because I can't imagine being optimistic given what you just painted. I mean, you know Travis mentioned the the whole electrification of transportation. That's not just theoretical. Literally, EPA is trying to move in the near term two-thirds of passenger vehicles to electric. That's just a massive demand increase. And if they're successful with that, they are certainly going to be, be successful with, with gas stoves and everything else. And when your answer to that is offshore wind, I don't see how that all that, – that equation doesn't equate for me to me. What does equate – is you have this huge increase in demand. You have a set of policy goals that essentially make the grid less productive, maybe less efficient, maybe less reliable. That will result, because because politicians and bureaucrats can try to ignore Adam Smith's invisible hand, but it will eventually punch you square in the face if you do so. And New England seems to me they're about to get punched square in the face because you're going to have this massive increase in prices. Um, you said that enough people win, it feels to me. I'm not putting words in your mouth. It's just like dumb old Jack sort of looking at it. Uh, the average people of New England are going to get screwed here. Yeah, the, the elite, the politicians, the special interests, they'll get paid. They always get paid. But some, this just doesn't make any sense to me. And you can't build a nuclear plant. You just close them down. The natural gas you have coming in, what, a lot of that was was Russian, wasn't it? Didn't, didn't,
3: no, it, it, it's been a long time since we okay. had any gas directly from
1: Russia. Um, but still, just it's unbelievable to me how you can be optimistic. Thank God you are. Thank God you
3: are. Well, look, I live there, right? So I have a vested interest in making sure that we do sustain some level of affordability and reliability. He's also got on-site hydrocarbons
0: at his house. We talked about this. So that helps. I also have that. And thank God that nobody's coming around and trying to pull my propane tank out of my ground because that will never happen.
1: Good. but How do the basic economics work? Like that supply and demand curve ultimately rules. You can't get, you can't,
3: you can't deny it over time. No question. And so part of, I I think, the responsibility that this region has is trying to do all of this as responsibly as possible. Because I think the other aspect of this is putting aside whether you believe this is the right path or not, this is the path we're on. And so... If the goal for the states um, and, and many of, uh, of the folks in New England is about trying to, to drive this decarbonized economic future, I don't think it's because New England overall is going to fundamentally change the, the emissions equation globally, right? The six states of New England have roughly the same emissions as the single state of Ohio. So then we come back to why are we doing this? To me, the why in New England is to try and demonstrate that this can be done in some form of an economic basis that is reliable, does provide continued economic prosperity um, a- across the region. This is why I-, I am hopeful that we can do this in a mar- more market-based format, but Jack, I I get why you're more pessimistic than I am optimistic on this because we have not shown right now that that is uh, where we're going to to go, but I think we can get there. Well, I'm glad that you are optimistic. That was what I wanted to close
1: on. Um, we've basically run out of time, so thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, Tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't, tell your enemies to check us out. Either way, just tell someone. So, Travis, Rachel, Dan, any final words?
2: You can find this episode, along with our previous episodes, anywhere you get your podcasts. Just search The Heritage Power Hour, and you'll see our full episode library.
0: Excellent. Thank you, Rachel. I'm just going to say, time will tell whether we should have been pessimistic or optimistic about New England. I'm... I'm in the middle somewhere. We'll see where it goes. But, you know, this is this is an interesting experiment, because, as Dan said, if the goal is to show that it can be done, the real risk is that it actually cannot be done. And you've put these six states in a very tough position. And when I say you, I mean the politicians that that set the rules, the decarbonization experiment, if it goes poorly, could be the example of what not to do. So it could actually set us back in terms of in terms of the people who really want this climate progress decarbonization stuff. This could be
3: a really stark example of what not to do is the risk. States and, are the laboratory of government. Sometimes the chemistry stat explodes, and other times you come up with something good.
1: And at the end of the day, I'm not actually pessimistic at all. I think that these... Um, regions that are going through these experiments. I, look, I think that they're going to fail. I understand. Not, not. I think that that they will fail despite the the efforts of people like Dan. And Dan will make the overall effort successful ultimately. And so that's why I'm I am optimistic. If anybody can do it, Dan can do it. Yes. No pressure. Good luck, so, Dan. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Before we go, where can people reach us at Travis? That's your oh, oh, that's if, your
0: part. Oh, if they want to email us. Yes. You can send an email to org, and not only will we read it, but we will, if you want us to, we'll shout out your name, and we'll at, the oh very, we'll at the very
1: least answer your questions. I forgot to mention, we have, you know, we're international now. We are an international phenomenon. We have, um, one of the people who reached out to us is an old friend of ours. His name is Oscar from Ghana. So, Oscar. Thank you so much for listening. I'm glad that you reached out. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye.